podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This episode of Red Inca is about Shane Warne. And it kind of had to be, right? And I thought about doing an emergency podcast when it first happened, but I didn't really know how I would do it. And would it just be me on my own trying to emotionally process it all? And then my friend John Norman said, why don't we do a podcast where we just chat about him until we run out of things to say? And I'll put it up on TalkSport and you can put it up on Red Inca. So here it is. Two friends talking about Shane Warne for a very long time. What is your first memory of Shane Warne? So my first memory of Shane Warne was he so obviously he's Victorian and from mm. Melbourne and he got picked for the Sydney test. The really strong thing that I remember was that everyone kept going on, on about the sound of his deliveries. And I remember I reckon someone must have said it on TV or on the radio and I heard or maybe it was written down. And then my old man kept going on about it. And it didn't make any sense to me because I was like, what are they talking about? The sound of his deliveries, right? Like what a weird thing to say. And, you know, I played, you know, I was, what, 11 or 12. Like, I'd played cricket and I'd been around senior cricket and I couldn't understand. And then later, you know, when people kept going on about it, I realised what they were saying is that he put so many revs on the ball that you could hear the revolutions on the ball. Wow. And I was like, what does that mean? And, and it was funny, Dan, Dan Bredig wrote a piece about that today. He talked about that particular thing. That was what we were all told. Because when you watched him the first couple of matches, especially, it was like he wasn't athletic right um he bowled okay he spun the ball a lot against india in that test match at the scg but ravi shastri destroyed him like uh, you you could imagine that would be someone's last test not just their first test but their last test but the commentators just kept going on about how much purchase he was putting on the ball and the noise that you could hear through the air um and that's that was the thing that carried us for you know what he had one good test at the start of his career, which were in the first four tests, which was in Sri Lanka. It, I don't think it was broadcast in Australia. It was certainly, I, we didn't have uh, cable TV, so we didn't see it. And all we heard was he took a bunch of wickets to help Australia win the game. But then when you look at it, he took like four wickets in the game. Three wickets were in the last five minutes when it was basically pitch black at the SSC. So no one's, talk, you know what I mean? Again, no one was talking him up. And it really wasn't until he came back at that, you know, the MCG match where everything changed against the West Indies. I'm assuming you you would have been just old enough to maybe have fo been following the, the warm-ups, but I'm assuming it was the actual gatting ball for you. So the gatting ball is one of those... Mem and I, I don't think I saw the gatting ball live. In fact, I know I didn't see the gatting ball live. If I did, I can't remember it. It was probably when I was at school. That's the thing, you know? Yeah. So it's similar to 81 Headingley. And I don't know whether my, I have real memory or whether it's just because I've seen so much since that's kind of implanted itself in my brain. But you know what? It was only about, it was probably only about two or three years ago I realised that the Gatting ball happened in exactly the same test match when I gave the game up. So I will never forget the Manchester test of 93. Because it was the day that I, I basically had a strop. I flounced off. I just had enough. And see, this is, 
this is why I wanted us to talk about Shane Warne, because, you know, we have great similarities. We both work in cricket. We live in the same part of London. I think morally, uh, in terms of we have view the world very in a similar way. Politically, we're very... Both sex kittens. We're both incredibly attractive people. You know, we've got very intelligent wives. We've got children. We're at a similar <laughs> stage of our lives. We've known each other for a long, long time. 15, both. 12, 13 years or something now. Both completely useless when we were younger. <laughs> both terrible, terrible. I mean, if... I mean, if Pete... You know, every time some new, fresh-faced, straight-A media student comes through the doors at TalkSport, I look at them and I think, oh, my day. You know, I mean, that my life before I became, uh, entered the world of the media is completely like, I just don't talk about it to anyone apart from you, basically. <laughs> it's just something that I can't talk about. I certainly wouldn't talk about on air. But, but where we're different is, is our relationship with Australian cricket and English cricket for obvious reasons. Mm. We grew up in similar kind of environment, you know, we've, We've got very strong relationships with our parents. You're an only child. I'm not. That's probably the biggest, probably the biggest difference between us. Maybe. Well, both come from families of educators as well. Yes. Like, there's a lot of ridiculous similarities. Yeah, there's, there. there's a lot there. And so I was just thinking, you know, I was just. And the other thing is, we were together yesterday in the morning, weren't we, for two hours round your house? Yeah. And I left your house, and and I had to get to the office, and then the news broke, and you know, I went into. I know it, sound, it might sound crass to make this comparison, but I'm going to do it. And if you bear with me, you'll understand what the point I'm making. But in 2005, um, the London bombings happened, right? And I was working at TalkSport then. And uh, I remember waking up and I was seeing, I was watching the TV and there was this, this report on the news about electric, electrical outages that cause these explosions. And it was all very odd. And then suddenly it became apparent that they weren't electrical outages, they were bombs. So anyway, I, you know, I had, I just had this, I had to get into the office. So I, I had seen my mate the other, the night before and like, so basically, obviously you couldn't get in from South London to where we were in Waterloo. So I'd seen my mate the night before and I, he has a bike. So basically I went around his house, borrowed his push bike, cycled into work and I cycled from Streatham, Streatham to, um, to Waterloo and I was cycling in and all you, it was so, it was one of the most surreal days of my life and one of the most tragic days, of course, so many people died, but you know, there was nobody on public transport. The roads were deserted and everyone was walking on pavements away from the city. And I was cycling in anyway, I get into the office and my boss at the time, um, uh, old fleet street, you know, one of the old school, uh, Bill Ridley, he looked at me and he realized I had a bike and he just sent me out. And he sent me out to Russell Square, uh, the scene of the um, the bombings via the bus that had been blown up. And I reported on, on air all day on Talk Sport from the scene as the emergency services were going in and blah, blah, blah. Then the shift came to an end. I mean, I, I was there from, say, 10 a.m. through to 7 p.m., 8 p.m., right? And I was... And then I... You know, that was it. They, they said, time to go home. You, you, you head off. Well done, blah, blah, blah. And then I remember I cycled back to Waterloo or something. The trains were running by that point. And I got on the train and I looked at a newspaper and it was a front page of the Evening Standard. And there was a picture of the bus that had been blown up. 
And it mm. just hit me. And I realized what had happened that day. So from the moment that I had found out the news, I'd kind of gone into work mode. I'd been mm. a professional. I'd had to go and report on what was happening. And then I got on the tube as a, as a passenger, as a, as a commuter. And looking at that front page, it just made me realize in a way that I hadn't comprehended at any point that day, the enormity of what had occurred. And a similar thing happened to me yesterday. So I left your house. I came back to here where I'm broadcasting now to my house, made a cup of tea, had some, had some food, jumped on the train. And then I'm on the train to London Bridge. It's a 10 minute journey. And I get a call and Shane Warne's dead. Hi, John. It's, John, mm. it's I can't even remember. I, I cannot even remember who it was who called. Hi, it's Shane Warne's, Shane Warne. Have you heard the news about Shane Warne? I was like, oh, what's it? You know, I, I, my immediate impre- thought was probably the same as everybody's. It was like, oh God, what's he done now? And then it was like, he's dead. And I just clicked straight into, I mean, I couldn't believe it, first off. And the, anybody around me, I remember there was a woman sitting across from me and she was looking at me. She could only hear one side of the conversation. And then I immediately, um, I text Nico, because I thought, if anyone knows, he knows. And I, text, I texted yeah. him, I said, Nico, are you here? Because I I, he was flying back from South Africa, Mark Nicholas. And I said, and he just got back to me straight away and he said, no, I'm here. And I just called him and I said, is it true? And he said, yeah. And, and I was like, you know, and at that point, actually, I was a human being because I, it's his mate, right? It's, it's his mm. mate. And he looks up to Shane, looked up to Shane, didn't he? He loves Shane. And I said to him, look, I don't know if you're in any state, but can you come on air? And he said he would. And, and he was prob- I imagine he was probably the first person to speak about it on there. I imagine. I can't, I can't see anybody else. Because a lot of people were waiting for confirmation from his yeah. agent or from whatever. But I knew if Mark knew it was true and it was, we could go with it. Mm. I mean, it's probably we shouldn't have, but we did. And I, you know, whatever. Anyway, I'm, li- I'm literally five minutes from work. I get in and then it's all going off. If you've ever been in a live radio or TV situation when something happens like this. Some very selfish way, it's the reason you do the job, to be honest. And everyone's in the control room and everyone's a bit surprised. It's like, you know, Shane Warne's just died and then people haven't seen me for three and a half months because I've been in New Zealand because if you know, you know, and then suddenly I just bowl in, I bowl in and I'm like, get this person and do this, and we're calling and blah, blah, blah. So for the next two hours, I'm on, Times Radio, I'm on talk radio, I'm sorting out guests, I'm doing everything, you know, being part of the, 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 the uni mind of just trying to deal with this breaking story, which mm. is just on a magnitude of, you know, it's up there with, you know, it's up there with, wow, well, you know. And then um, my boss says, we want you on from four. We want you on from four for, for the whole show. And I was like, look, I can't because my wife's in New Zealand. He knew knew this, and I and I couldn't have any. Nobody could look after my son after six, and as luck would have it, somebody was picking up from school. Anyway, so I'm dashing around for two hours, and then suddenly I'm in the studio, and the mics go up, and the 
the host, Andy Goldstein, just starts speaking. And he starts saying, Shane Warne's died. And, and for the first time, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking, I know that he's going to ask me what, you know, what it means. And it's mm. the first time I really thought about it. I just cleared my mind and I just thought to myself, what does it mean? Why am I so incredibly and profoundly shocked by this news? And it's not just because he's so young and because, you know, it's such a surprise. I mean, of course, that is part mm. of it. But it was the first time I just stopped being a professional journalist and just became a, the person that I am. And I spoke and greater people than I, people who know Shane, knew Shane. I mean, we didn't know Shane. We went out for, in fact, we were together when we, we were together, weren't we? When Shane Wall bought us both a drink and we were, look, let's be honest. We were both trying to be cool, but you know, that's a big deal. We're sitting there with Shane Warne <laughs> and it's late at night and he's having a ciggy and he's, you, you know, you boys want a drink? And we're like, yeah, yeah, I'll get a drink off your Shane. And it's like, that's, that's cool. But um, was that in Birmingham? I think it was either Birmingham or Leeds. I, can, I, can, I think it was Birmingham, yeah. yeah. It was Mal Maison, wasn't it? It's outside. And we worked out. It was like, it was like 11.30 at night. And there was Warney, Tufnell, and um, Graham Swan. And it's like, and we were like, man, this is such a stereotype about spinners, isn't it? It's always spinners. <laughs> They're out drinking and smoking till stupid o'clock. Anyway, I'm di I've digressed way from the, the, the question that you actually asked me. But, um, but it got me thinking about this morning, I was on the way to football, I took my son, and this is the thing, I took my son to his first Fulham game today. And, you know, yesterday and i can't quite work it out i can't quite work out how to describe it but it's like you know yesterday it was the end of it was the end of a relationship i have with cricket mm. that goes all the way back to 1993 but today was the start of a relationship my son is going to have with fulham that's going to go all the way to mm. I, I mean he may decide not to really get into it but it just seems symbolic, really. And then it just made me think, I just thought of me and you, really. I just thought, why don't we just sit down and just chat about Shane Warne and just see where, we, where it ends mm. up. And, and yeah. And so to go back all the way, I've just been chatting for 10 minutes straight. I, I don't remember the ball of the century. I didn't, I'm pretty, I'm 99% sure I didn't see it at the time. And that's why it's interesting. It's really interesting because my relationship with Shane Warne is so strong but it's the complete opposite of yours because like you're mm. wearing a Surrey cap, aren't you right now? I so like I sure. should be wearing a Victoria cap really, shouldn't I? But that's <laughs> the thing. So you said your first memory of Shane Warne was, was then, but you, did you not play for Victoria? I mean, was that not something? He played for Victoria, but he didn't take any wickets and he only played three or four really? games. See, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah. I'd have to go back and check the numbers, but, I don't think he, I think he played a, I don't think he played a two a game. There wasn't really that much hype. There was kind of hype about the fact that, so that period, Dan, uh, Darren Lehman had defected from South Australia to Victoria. That was a huge story in Victorian cricket. Uh, Dean Jones was the number one ODI batter in the world, um, had missed out on the World Cup at home. 
um, after that. That was a huge mm. story uh, revolving around the team. And then there was sort of, there was always rumours that like, you know, Damien Fleming and um, Paul Rifle and Tony Dottermade and Merv Hughes like were forming this great group of bowlers coming through. But Warren didn't really do much when he played for Victoria. So there wasn't any real reason at that point to get massively excited by him. So even if he played for Victoria. See, I didn't, I just I did not know think, that. Yeah. Oh, because. Yeah, I don't think it was a big deal. I'd have to check the numbers to, to, to go back on it. But put it this way, me and Bryden Coverdale do play a game. I don't know if you've ever been around when we've done this before. You're probably too busy working when we're in the middle of the day and we get a bit bored. We play a game where we pick a Victorian player who has played probably less than 30 games and we have to come up with their exact batting or bowling average. And it's all basically guys from about 86 to 2004, right? And we'd, we'd done it a couple of times, I think, before other people started noticing we were doing this stupid game. And everyone's like, but they were all so shocked at how accurate we were. So for me, for me to have missed Warren and know who Jared Dowling is, who played two first-class games for Victoria, <laughs> kind of tells you that he wasn't massively on on he wasn't a massive name i know within district cricket he was i think people had already started talking about him in district cricket of this guy spinning the ball sideways like how on earth do you play him but in victorian uh, you know uh, cricket at that point he hadn't really taken off and even until he really takes the seven far against the west indies so that's in um uh, December of 92, Boxing Day 92. Till he takes that seven-wicket haul, like, there's still a lot of talk about this other leg spinner in, Australia, in Victoria called Craig Howard, who's coming through at the same time. It's not, you know what I mean? He hadn't even really separated himself from that other player. I'd say, I, I, didn't, I did not know that. The only thing that we used to hear about Warney, and it was always a kind of like um, fed into the mystique about Australians and the fact that, they're, you know, not quite tall poppy syndrome, but they certainly, you know, a player, a, a big player, name player coming back to play in shield cricket, they would absolutely destroy them, you know, as much as possible. And, you know, it was always that, oh, whenever Shane Warne played in shield cricket, the all the Australian batsmen he bowled to were just hell bent on just, mm. you know, battering him as much as humanly possible. But I didn't realise that his escalation to to the international scene was quite so... So I just, I just got it so up now on, on, on Cricket Archive. So... He played, I was right, actually. So he played Australia. I thought he played for Victoria versus a touring team, but he didn't. He played for Australia B. So he played one Shield game. See, that's crazy. His next game was, yeah, his next game was for Australia B. He played against, uh, he went on that tour of Zimbabwe, uh, which was quite an important um, tour at that stage. I think he would have played for Victoria more had he not been thrown out of the academy, by the way. He also came back from England one year, massively overweight. <laughs> so there were, and, and you've got to remember that that period of, especially Victorian cricket, but also in general, they were very much getting very professional and it was very Aussie rules dominated. To have a guy come back unfit was not uh, ideal. Yeah, so he played, he, played, he played two games in Zimbabwe and then he played three games for Victoria and his next game was for an Australian 11 and the game after that was the test match, right? And that was it. So very much like David Warner, he just came almost straight in. The difference is that David Warner was a bit older and had made some white ball uh, runs at that point, whereas Warren just came straight in. So I'm just trying to have a look. His first game was in St Kilda. Uh, there's no way my dad would have taken me to St Kilda. That's the other end of the world from where I live. Um, and the next two games he played for Victoria were in November. So I would have been at school. 
So I wouldn't have been able to go and, and probably watch those either. So there was there was certainly when he got picked, there was a lot of hype, right? That's the natural thing, you know. Your, your local boy is is picked, and Victoria was really parochial in that particular era because we thought that Dean Jones mm. was Mate, being. You and Collos are still pissed off about that, like quarter of a century <laughs> later. Exactly, but I think I, I'm trying to think about the dates. I think that's almost exactly when. That was like the year after Mark Wara took it over from Dean Jones in the test team and also the period just after Dean Jones was left out of the World Cup, which is, which was a ridiculous thing to have, you know, your best ODI batter not in that particular team. Uh, but the test team, I think Mark Wara was probably um, more useful to Australia than, than, than Dean Jones would have been, although that is a hugely divergent point. But, but essentially, so he then, he then played there. So there wasn't, there wasn't any build-up. So if, I'm trying to think, if you think about, there were some Australian players in that era that were really, really built up before they played. Mark Wall was obviously one. Mark Taylor was another one. Um, I'm trying to think if there was any of the Victorian guys coming through. Some probably a couple of years later, you know, guys like Brad Hodge and Matthew Elliott uh, that came through Victoria that were really, really built up. Um, a Paul Rifle maybe a little bit as well. There, there was a, lot, a little bit of hype about, about him. Warren just sort of appeared, right? And then when you look at him, it's not like you're looking at, a great athlete, like at that point, right? Yeah. And the Quite other the thing opposite. is, I'm gonna here's my question for you. I want to know your Australian cricket history. Who were the leg spinners before Warren? Do you remember any? No, I don't really. So one became chairman of selectors. So I thought you might know him. No, because I was I was actually gonna look into this because this was one of the things that I said on Talksport. You know, it's now we kind of see leg spinners, you know, an integral part of of cricket, especially within Australian cricket. Mm-hmm. But that that's just completely not the case, is it? I mean, even we've spoken no. many times about how you, it wasn't, I mean, you're a leg spinner yourself. You were before you mullered your arm. <laughs> but, you know, it wasn't even Shane Warne that got you into that, was it? I mean, it's like, it's, it's nope. he just basically, he brought back an, a, a dead art, essentially. Yeah. So Trevor Holmes was the chairman of selectors. He, he was a leg spinner. You might remember Bob Holland, who played when yeah. he was like, 83 years old, like he's famous for being one of the older players in modern post-war cricket anyway, uh, to make his debut. I think that's right. I, th- I think I've got my Bob Holland fact right. The other one was a guy who's, he's, he's, got, he's the most fascinating cricket trivia question if you ever want to really stump someone. Two Australian cricketers played in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. One's Alan Border, and the other one's this leg spinner who no one ever remembers. No. He's asleep. Let's see, there you right? go. Those are the That's three it. guys. I'm, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure there was. Oh, so much so that in eighteen in the eighty nine Ashes. I don't know if you remember this. It was a big. It was a big plot point in Australia, but I don't know if it really made it into the UK press. But uh, Australia wanted to use a leg spinner, um, and they were thinking about not picking. Uh, I think Trevor Holmes was on that tour. They were thinking about not using Trevor Holmes and actually using Tim Zura, who was the backup wicketkeeper. Uh, because he bowled some really good. He he actually bowled a little bit like Warren. He ragged it sideways, and they were thinking about using him. So that sort of tells you how far they were from any sort of major leg spinners. And and the other thing is that if you look back, like I'm talking about the 80s, really, yeah, right? Yeah. The period just before Warren. But I had a look at it today. It's like so. Kerry O'Keefe played 23 or 24 Test matches, I think. How many wickets do you think Kerry O'Keefe got in those Test matches? Well, I looked at Kerry O'Keefe's test record not that long ago, actually. <laughs> so I, I, this is a problem. I always look at these things and then I completely forget them. He played 24 tests. Yeah, I think so. Roughly around there, yeah. 30. 
I mean, it was slightly better than that. He got 50. So he took about two wickets a test. Yeah. So he was essentially, him and Terry Jenner were the only sort of close to frontline wrist spinners. Neither of them did very well. And that's what's another thing to go back to the Gatting ball that I found so amazing when I was thinking about it. The last time that leg spin was a big deal in the ashes between Australia and England was when Richie Benno was bowling. Yeah. Right. It's that long ago that I'm, I'm not saying that they weren't the odd good spells, you know, and, and, you know, Kerry had some good moments and, you know, there was certainly Terry Jenner almost got killed, didn't he? By Jon Snow at the SCG. They certainly had their moments within games. And, you know, there was, uh, I'm, you know, I'm trying to think if there are any, um, anyone after Richie Benno that played for England, I, there probably wasn't actually, but it just wasn't a thing at all. And then Terry Jenner, you know, Terry Jenner's backstory, right? Well, the, the imprisoned bit, the, yeah, yeah like yeah. he comes out of jail for embezzlement. So some form of fraud comes out of jail and gets paired up with Warren. Yeah. It's a really remarkable story when you think about it. And, and then at the same time, Bob Simpson is the Australian coach. Bob Simpson was, uh, what would you call Bob Simpson? Bob Simpson was almost like a Michael Bevan uh, or Simon Kadditch type leg spinner. Do you know what I mean? Or wrist spinner in that he was like the backup and he was obviously in the side to bat. And then occasionally he, you know, he, he would bowl. He, he was, he was decent, but he wasn't frontline or anything. And suddenly Shane Warne has these two incredible influences in his life. This, this guy who screwed up his own life. Yeah. Uh, and this other guy who, you know, Bob Simpson really is, he's the first modern cricket coach. He's the one that everyone copies, right? Like everyone after every, every team after uh, Australia wanted their own version of Bob Simpson for those two things to fall into place, considering that there was no one else around, like it would have been very easy for Shane Warne to have no mentors, right? It's true. If, if they if they didn't have Bob Simpson and they they went, well, we're not going to let him hang around with Terry Jenner because Terry Jenner has just gone to jail, um, which are both reasonable and normal things that could have happened in that era. Shane Warne probably isn't Shane Warne. Not to say he wouldn't have spun the ball the same amount, but he wouldn't have had, he wouldn't have had the control. He wouldn't have had the flipper. Um, I, I don't think he would have been that clever a bowler or that skillful a bowler at that stage. And, and in fact, in Dan Bredding's piece I was talking about before, he talks about the fact that one reason that, and I don't know if Warren's ever said this, but other people have said this, is that they think that his shoulder and his finger got sore is once Bob Simpson wasn't around, he basically relied on his arm and his finger. And when you're putting that many revs on the ball, you need to actually share the, the wealth. And what, what uh, Bob Simpson was doing was saying, push through. The more energy you have through the crease, you'll do. And that was the thing that when I grew up, did all the other leg spinners. I knew heaps of guys who could spin the ball as much as Warren, but their arms always fell apart or their fingers fell apart because they didn't have the energy through the crease or the strength that he had to be able to keep doing it. And that even affected Warren because, you know, he ended up bowling 50,000 um, balls in, you know, in top-level cricket, not to mention, uh, you know, Victoria and Hampshire, although I'm pretty sure he ended up with more wickets for Hampshire than Victoria, which well, see, really bothers me. So that's that's the thing. So... Was he always Australia's Shane Warne then? Because, you know, when, when we used to hear him on comms, even now, you know, I was listening to his <laughs> Wednesday during the last Ashes and it was announced that the fifth test was going to be going to, uh, to Hobart mm. and he was on air at the time and he was just spitting. He was like, he was like well, you know, how big is that? So what's that, 12,000 a day? And he was like just full on about Melbourne. He was always going. I remember him ribbing um, when... Uh, <laughs> Brisbane was announced as the host of the Commonwealth Games. And 
Who was it? He was on air. Who would have been on air with him? Who was from Queen? Mark, no, where was Mark Taylor? From? Healy or someone? Maybe as Ian Healy, and he was just killing him. He was just like, "Whoa, wow! Commonwealth Games going to Brisbane." <laughs> Woo. So, like, in the face of it, he was always big up Melbourne. You know, big up Victoria. Mm. But did you see? You know, my love of Alex Stewart, and this is another thing where we're completely different when it comes to Shane Warne, but. You know, Stuart was Surrey through and through. Mm. He was my favourite player because he was from. He played for Surrey, and he also had a, an attacking mindset. And he was he was fantastic to watch. But it was Shane Warne like the Michael Owen. You may not uh, uh, understand the reference, but Michael Owen played. Michael Owen played for Liverpool, right? He played alongside a mm -hmm. guy called Robbie Fowler. Robbie Fowler was was called God. You know, for three seasons he was the most. You know, he was the best striker in the world, and then he got injured. Yada yada, but. Liverpool fans never quite warmed to Michael Owen in the same way they did Robbie Fowler. Robbie Fowler never played for England half as much as Michael Owen. Michael Owen was a superstar. Was Shane Warne? So, and then Michael Owen went on to play World Cups for England, and that's really where he made his name. Then he went to Real Madrid and yada yada. And then he you know, went to Manchester United, which went down really well with Liverpool fans. But essentially, you know, what was Shane Warne seen as a Victorian by Victoria fans? Did that happen? So you've got to remember that you're comparing this to football and, and county cricket, mm. which both have actual crowds. We always joke that, you know, the sort of the bunch of us who now all work in cricket, you know, me, Rusty Jackson, uh, you know, Bryden Coverdale, Adam White, all of us who sort of came up, you know, uh, through uh, Victoria, that there must have been a time when we were the only four people in the ground <laughs> watching Victoria play. I mean, he's, but, he's incredible. but county cricket Watch. has that image but for you are you like well, actually no county cricket is quite well attended county cricket has a crowd compared to the mcg right for 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 a shield game you, you can get people into the mcg i saw some great shield finals there and some you know decent one day games and when they used to play the t20 there they had huge crowds before it even went to the, the big bash league but you know i've been in the mcg when i felt like i'm the only one there for a shield game multiple times uh i've you know we used to count the crowd sometimes you know to see if, if it was over 100. Wow. Uh, in, and then in the MCG, you can imagine how that feels. Like, it's so weird. It does allow you well, to sledge the, the players so much better. Yeah. <laughs> so there wasn't that big, but there's certainly... So on when, when I started my blog, Cricket With Balls, I used to refer to him as Hampshire's Shane Moore. <laughs> because, for two reasons. One, he did play a lot more for Hampshire than he did for Victoria. Ah. And two, when he played for Victoria, he never, ever bowled well. And this is really weird that no one, no one, I'm the only person in the world fascinated with this, but I promise you. So when I said he took more wickets for Hampshire before, I've just looked it up. He did take more wickets for Hampshire, but hilariously, it's not that, 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 that really grates. He had a bowling average of 25 for Hampshire. He had a bowling average of 34 for Victoria. <laughs> right. And so many times he'd come back and he, you could tell he was just going through the motions Yeah. as a Victorian fan. It was absolutely frustrating, but no one else in Melbourne felt that way other than, you know, maybe me, Bryden, you know, Rusty. There was no one there, right? There's, there's a handful of, like, Victorian fans that, that I sort of, you know, would sort of recognise and we'd nod at each other, and that's it. There, there was no one at these grounds. And so I don't think other people had that. I think the really interesting thing with Shane Warne is that you've got to understand how much Australia changed in the 90s. We literally went from Bob Hawke downing beers to Paul Keating speaking Latin, 
right, mm. in a very, very short space of time. And Australia went from, you know, living off the sheep's back to being, as, as you would know, you spent a lot of time out there, an incredibly middle-class country. Australians mm. don't even understand this, but it's like it went really, really middle-class all the way through from the inner city to the suburbs, even if there was still that sort of Australian feeling there, right? Shane Warne is very much old-school Australia, mm. right? He's not particularly refined. He likes toasted sandwiches and he likes baked beans and, and, and uh, um, you know, and pizza. He doesn't eat lots of different foods. He's not, a you know, his favourite, he has to do more commentary. All his favourite movies were like the DVDs you could get for five, for five bucks yeah. in Kmart, right? It was like, you know, a bunch of Will Ferrell movies, maybe some Adam Sandler. Uh, he talked about Stifler more. Than, no one had talked. No one talked about American Pie more. They made nine American Pie films, didn't they? And only Shane Warne probably was watching to the end. He probably was the person watching to the end, right? You know, and, and and so he was, you know, that sort of very basic sort of guy. But Australia's changing, right? And there's this big cultural cringe about him smoking. You know, about you know, well, not him smoking, but the whole advertising. You know, him advertising that he was going to give up the smokes and then getting caught smoking. There was the affairs. There was the like getting caught in his underwear. There was, you know, oh, um, I, I took um, I took those pills because um, I was trying to slim down. You know, from I, he took money off the bookie. Everything was like this big cultural cringe. He was like, he was essentially a character out of Neighbours, right? who no one in Australia watched Neighbours. As you know, it's only famous in, in the UK. Literally, Neighbours has just shut down because they couldn't find a UK distributor and no one has left watching it in Australia over the last 25 years, right? I went on the Neighbours tour. Wish I hadn't told you that. You, um, uh, do you know, the people who write Neighbours up until very recently, I'm not sure they're all they were all still there at the end, but they're all huge cricket fans. And, and one of them I used to work with years ago, lovely guy. He was one of my early writing mentors, a guy called Rene. And so... Well, they played, they played cricket in the credits back in the day, didn't they? They were playing cricket on the street. They did, yeah. And so Warren was like that, yeah. right? And that was not the Australia that, that was, it was becoming, right? You, you had like Warren and Dougie Bollinger. The real, <laughs> the person who was much more like representative of Australia is Michael Clark at that point, who Australians yeah. hated, right? They loved, there was, there was a whole, no one loved Michael Clark. No. Ever, almost, until he started making triple centuries. No one liked him at all. Whereas Shane Warne was loved and hated really, really equally. But there was certainly a cringe of, you know, like I remember when the Shane Warne the musical was made. Yeah. And it was like, and it made fun of him so much. And there were just so, I just, there was a lot of rolling the eyes, I think, of people uh, with when it came to Shane Warne. And so I, I think that was the more interesting thing for me, that he would have to have been, close to the most famous Australian in the world at that point. I'm trying to think of Greg Norman's on the wane, right? Uh, yeah. it's, it's Russell Crowe's New Zealander, but I suppose Russell Crowe's in that kind of period as well. Uh, Nicole Kidman, obviously, yeah, Nicole Kidman, uh, is coming yeah. through. Luke Longley's playing for the Chicago Bulls. Like, There's famous Australians in, in multiple different fields at that point. You know, Natalie Imbruglia had a big single and Kylie Minogue, obviously. Dame, the Shane Warne's almost like the most famous person, right? You've got, to have, you've got to have Dame Edna in there. I think Dame Edna by the 90s is pretty much over, mate. You're the only one hanging on to Dame Edna in the 90s. Probably. Dame Edna's <laughs> a 1980s. Dame Edna and Rolf Harris had the 80s. I don't think they had the 90s. I think they would go on by then. Uh, what was it? But, but I think worldwide, and I think there was like, I think there was a lot of people who were like, could it not be Steve Waugh? Could it not be someone a little bit more, you know, of the, of the times? And Steve Waugh's 
you know, his own sort of issue. But I, I think that was the only thing that I remember, you know, people sort of going, oh, Warnie's at it. There was always that feeling yeah. of Warnie's at it again. Do you know what I mean? A Warnie's stuffed up again. Oh, what's he done this time? Yeah. Well, we got that in England. Yeah. And that was my reaction when someone could, have you heard about Warn? I was like, oh, what's he done now? Yeah, but you say that in England. That's how you see Australians. Oh, here's my perfect story of Warn in England, right? This very posh friend of mine who, um, who you'd be shocked, a posh person working in cricket, who <laughs> we were out one day and he said to me, oh, he goes, I think Warren's actually a really intelligent guy. And if he went to the, in the kind of schools that I went to, he'd be much more refined or whatever. And I was like, he went to one of the best schools in Melbourne, right? He got a scholarship for football and cricket because he was, he was probably even better a footballer when he was quite young. Yeah. I'm like, this isn't a matter if he went to the wrong kind of school. <laughs> this is who Shane Warren was. This is who Shane Warren was. If Shane Warren went to Eton, he would have been like this. He was incapable of change his whole life, which you have to respect. But, but that's why we liked him. Yeah. Because he wore his, even like, you know, you mentioned all of those terrible things he did. He always owned them. Like that, that you see, I'm sure you saw it. The Matt Hancock thing, you know, the uh, former health secretary who was having an affair. It was caught on camera and, you know, he was basically in flagrant breach of his own lockdown rules and he gets fired. Anyway, so he comes out, you know, he's trying to basically do the old PR thing, you know, trying to get back, get his political career back. He's got like a polo neck jumper on, some jeans. He's doing a really soft focus, overly produced podcast. Um, and he's, you know, he's trying to weasel his way around. He, yes, he's sorry, but he's not quite that sorry and all that kind of stuff. And, and Shane Warne has always been and always was, was just this kind of guy who was like, yeah, I did it. That's it. I did it again. You're right. But even then, if you think about it, they hid the match-fixing bit. Not match-fixing, but, well, payments yeah. from a bookie, fixing, whatever you want to call it. They hit that, right? And we could say whatever we want. If this was a Russian runner and they said that they were taking this drug uh, or maybe a shot putter or someone, they were taking this drug to, um, uh, to lose a little bit of weight before a camera shoot, We'd be like, no, they're 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 a drugs cheat. He's not even referred to as a drugs cheat, yeah. even as he said that. And look, we have no idea, right? But other than getting called for chucking, he almost had crickets try, you know, um, hat trick of the worst possible things you could do in the sport. Right? Yeah. Like, literally, he was right there at the top, and yet, I, I think you're right. Like he, you know, he would get. He he was quite thin skinned as well. Weirdly, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was really thin skinned, but then at the same time, really like kind of. Except he ne just never accepting. changed. I think he you're right. That, there was that kind of accepting thing. It, it's funny. Do you remember that period? So the first time I spent a lot of time with him. So the only time, well, I socialized with him a couple of times. The only time he ever bought me a drink was with you. Mm. But I've been out a couple of times. But the first time I really spent a lot of time with him was we had, he had this big interview with ESPN. And it was, I think it was might have been me and Dan Bredick again, or my, me and George. I can't remember who, who was working for us at the time. But we went down. And he turned up at Lord's and he parked under the press centre. There wasn't a game day, but he literally just drove into the, the centre of Lord's. I'd never <laughs> seen anyone do that unless they were, like, dropping off alcohol or food. Or, do you know what I mean? Like, who parks under the press thing unless you're the groundsman? Yeah. <laughs> right? It was such a random thing to do. Anyway, he does it. And, of course, it's him in, on driving and Liz Hurley's with him, right? And he gets out the car and he's got this, you know, nice shirt on. Underneath it, he had tracksuit pants on, right? Tracky as we as he would have called them and I would have called them growing up, right? 
And you're just like, why bother to put the shirt on and not just put a decent pair of slacks on? And then the Lords were only letting us record in, you know, certain places. And we and we we chose um up at the up the top of the um of one of the stands. And walking up the stairs, he was moaning about the, how big the stairs were. And it was also on Brad, but also this was probably when he at the point when his face had ch- started to change shape. Yeah, yeah. When his teeth were whiter than any yeah. uh, any shade ever. He had the orange face at that point, the Donald Trump face. And also if you saw him, from, do you remember, you'd see him in the press box and his face from the front looked nothing like his face from the side. Yeah. Like he'd actually had a mask put on. And the whole thing was just hilarious. Like he's parked where he wants to. Liz Hurley's there. He's got tracky dacks on, but with a nice shirt. He's moaning about having to walk upstairs and he's a professional, former professional athlete. And this is about five or 10 years ago when he was a little early. He hadn't even retired from Rajasthan or Melbourne Stars that long before. And he's still complaining. He's got that whatever's going on with his face. But you put the camera on and, you know, the first few questions were more about his career and he's a bit bored. And then you start, we started asking, because it was me and Brady, we both grew up as leg spinners in his era, right? And we're like, leg spin question, nerd leg spin question, nerd leg spin question. And suddenly he was like, oh, this is great. No one ever asked me about this sort of stuff. That's and he was brilliant. like an absolute kid. And it was one of the most Shane Warne experiences that you could have because everything came up, you know, from him being a little bit lazy to him being obsessed with his own looks, Liz Hurley, him being so oblivious to the world around that he would just park his car under the... the, the it was... It was a very, very shame or moment. And it was, um, I don't know how long we spent with him, maybe, you know, 45 minutes or an hour. And then afterwards he was like asking us, uh, you know, questions, uh, you know, and every, and it was, it, he was, a very, I remember I, I was on um, TalkSport with, with Harmy and Harmy was talking about what a sort of a genuine person he was. Mm. Like there was so little acting, which is what, what yeah. got him in trouble a lot of the time, as you were talking about before, but he really was that sort of person. Like you listen to him commentate and let's be honest, 98% of the time, he was a horrible commentator, right? Oh. But when he found something that he was really cared about, he was actually quite good. Yeah. Like, you know, whether it might be leg spin or it might be something about captaincy or whatever, he could be really good because, again, you've tapped into that thing that he cares about and he, and he goes off. And he wasn't good at acting, which is weird because he, you know, had a decent poker career, but he wasn't good at acting. He was good at being really, really quite open and honest and, um, you know, and, I, I think that there was certainly a big part of that was what got him in trouble, but it was also what got him out of trouble. What, so what about watching him then? Because for English fans, or English cricket, well, for me, okay, let's just talk about me, because it was torturous, you know. So my favourite cricketer, as you know, is Alex Stewart. And, like, you could see Stewart, when he used to play against Australia when Warren was playing, he literally, he was trying to score as many runs as quickly as possible before Steve Waugh went, all right, we've had enough of this. Shane Waugh's coming on. And, it, and I'd be watching and I'd be like, I, I was fixated on Stuart having a batting average of 40, right? That was like, that's all I, that's all I cared about. As soon as he got past 40, like literally, I would be like that watching him and then he'd go past 40 and I'd just start to relax. And with Warm, when it came to Australia, get him up the order, open the batting, just basically tr- hit the ball as hard as you can cover drive, pull shot, you know, go for it, go for it, go for it. And then as soon as one came on, I'd be like, well, he's got 33, he's not going to get 40. And, and, he would, <laughs> and, he, and he'd be out. And the thing with watching Warren and Australia at that time was, it was, because I was still a teenager. So now I think sometimes, I think we lose sight as commentators and as journalists, we lose sight big time 
about what it is to support a team when you're a kid. And that is when you mm. fall in love with sport. When you're a kid, all you care about is your team winning. Nothing else, right? N if you're England are playing Bangladesh, that is an opportunity to destroy Bangladesh at home, this is. And, you know, for Stuart to score 200 and for England to rack up 500. When you're a journalist, you're like, oh, come on, I hope, you know, I hope, you know, <laughs> I hope it's competitive. Mm. So watching England against Australia from essentially 1989 through to 2005, it was awful. And Shane Warne was the main, one of the main reasons for that, because not only was he just like a superhuman, he put, rubbed it in your face as well. And it was just, he made him, he just destroyed my favourite player every time. And it was just, it was just so bleak. But, mm. I did, but I did have one out. And so go back to 92, right? That was the time that South Africa came out of apartheid. Mm. So I remember watching on the TV with my nan and my, with my grand and my dad, and, you know, Nelson Mandela with Winnie walking down that long walk to freedom and all that, you know, walking down. And, and anyway, so then um, South Africa are allowed to play sport again, yeah? South Africa, so obviously I could never, ever support Australia ever in anything unless they play South Africa. And that was my only time. So during World Cups, because we wouldn't get South Africa versus Australia. See, that was the other difference between us and me and you. You would watch Warren every single winter. Oh, sorry, every single summer, because he'd mm. be playing at home. But in England, we didn't have Sky. So we only saw him every four years, essentially, unless there was a World Cup. And mm. so Australia against South Africa was the only time I would allow myself to enjoy watching Shane Warren. And it was such a thrill. It was so good to just sit there and be able to just, instead of literally just like, literally be tormented by this bloke and all the other guys, I could actually just sit there and just be like, oh, okay, I could enjoy this stuff. And it was, well, that's it. It was quite, I'm just a bit envious. So I couldn't do it. I couldn't do that once every four years. I wish I could do it. I wish I could have done it more. Yeah, I think what it did was obviously Australia were becoming a super team around that period as well. And he plays a big part in that. Although you look at the fastballs I had, they probably would have still dominated quite a bit even without him. Maybe not on every surface like the way they did. But, you know, so he, he's coming through. It's obviously an improving team. But if you think about the bowlers just before then, so Bruce Reed was probably the one they everyone thought should have been great. And, you know, you watch Marco Janssen for South Africa now and you're just like, oh, that's what Bruce Reed would have been like if he bowled more than one test in a row. <laughs> and so then you had Craig McDermott, who again, he was the only fast bowler we'd had since Tomo, really. And he was out injured for years. Mm. You had Merv Hughes, who became really good, but kind of started as a bit of a running joke. You know, he was, Merv Hughes is a bit like an Ishan Sharma figure in Australian cricket for a long time of like, uh, this is the best. This is the best we could do, right? But he's fun, so we'll we'll you know we, we'll laugh at him and with him, right? And I suppose what? Who else would you have? You had guys like Jeff Lawson and Mike Whitney. Yeah, so you know Mike Whitney was a little bit fun, but you didn't really outside of the new ball. If Australia wasn't dominated with the new ball, there wasn't that much to like enjoy it. So I remember as a kid, we would watch the first twenty overs when we would bowl, <laughs> and then you'd go out and play, right? As Warren comes in, 
that's like one of the first changes of, oh, we should go out and play. Oh, the warning's coming on. Mm. Well, let's just watch it for the first 10 overs. And then, you know, it's like, okay, well, like, then we'll go out for half an hour. Yeah, we'll go out, we'll go out at lunch and then we'll do, do you know what I mean? Like you had to like. <laughs> that's brilliant. So it completely changed. And then that, well, that was what it was like. Every part of Warn for me personally was like this change in what we did. So whether it be playing cricket with my mates in the middle of the summer when we would now watch um, people uh, play a lot more. Then it was when I grew up, my dad always used to go on a bang on about, he wanted to be square of the wicket, square of the wicket. He wanted to see the pace and bounce. You know, he's a fast bowler. He wanted to see the pace and the bounce, he, you know. And my first test match was one of the few non-boxing day tests after 1980 um, at the MCG. Uh, I think it was in the middle of January, Australia played Pakistan. And we sat square to the wicket by the hat trick. So what's that? 19, Boxing Day 1994. We were behind the stumps from then on in and we never moved again. That's brilliant. Because that's where you watch so leg spin from, right? He made you move from your yeah, position. And, and I remember my dad just being absolutely captivated by him. And that was it. Like we, as a family. And after that, I noticed that even when I played cricket, and I don't know if it was because I was a leg spinner as well, but even when I played cricket, if my dad would watch when he wasn't coaching, you know, so after when I when I went on and on to another club after I left uh, junior cricket, he would still sit in the same spot, right? Like Warren had trained him where to go to have the best view, especially of leg spinners. I would say it's the best view everywhere. As you and I would know you don't want to be square of the wicket if you want to actually be able to tell what's happening off the pitch. But not all cricket fans feel that way, and they're not no. all in it for the same reason, right? And aesthetically... Sometimes square the wicket's pretty. Yeah, and also they're the cheap seats. So like, yeah, well, you that just, did come you into just my have to go record. there basically, didn't yeah. you? That's just how it is. It changed how me and my friends would spend our summers. It changed where my dad would sit at the cricket. And then the other thing is, you know, you alluded to before, I was a leg spinner before Shane Warne. So uh, I think when he made his debut, it was at 91, I think, wasn't it? Um, I would have been 11. So I probably would have been a leg spinner then by, for about two years, right? And the only leg spinners I'd seen was Abdul Qadir and Mushtaq Ahmed and Peter Sleep and, and those sorts of guys. Um, but Mushtaq Ahmed was the one that I was like, great. I, that's what I would mimic myself on. And of course, six months later, no one in Australia knew what a Mushtaq Ahmed was and everyone was talking about Shane Warne. But for that couple of months, he was huge in Australia because, uh, you know, because there was an actual leg spinner taking wickets. When I reckon my first year of playing leg spin, I was definitely the only leg spinner in my league. Uh, I reckon the second year, there was maybe one other, right? That was 1990, 1991. By 1993, it was very rare not to have a team that had a leg spinner in junior cricket. By 1996, I played my first representative cricket, and there were four of us in our squad. And I remember the, not only were there four of us in our squad, I went out to bat, and when I went out to bat, there was a leg spinner on at each end. So there was at least six leg spinners in the two squads playing in this, you know, in this um, uh, underage district game. That it, it was that quick and that full on for a long, long time. And it all became about how much you could spin the ball. You know, you've seen me bowl. That's not my thing. I'm much more of the Mushtaq Ahmed, uh, Anil Kumble mode of not really spinning it that much, spinning it enough when I have to, but... Um, and everyone just wanted everyone to rip the ball sideways and I didn't fit in. But you've got three different parts of my world that have already collided with Shane Warne. And then you've got the fact that Lily retires in what, 1984, 85? Between then and Shane Warne coming on, Australia didn't have that famous cricketer. Alan Border was a gun. 
right? And David Boone was known because of the mustache and Merv became known because of the mustache. And obviously Billy Birmingham made, I mean, it, I think it tells you a lot that the 12th man was really more about the commentators than it was the cricketers at that point. Shane Warne becomes a celebrity very, very early on, right? 93 to 97, he's famous. Mm, yeah. Everyone <clears throat> in Australia knows who he is. So every conversation, you know, oh, what sports do you like, Jared? Oh, you know, I, I play cricket. That's my favorite sport. Shane Warne. I haven't even told them I'm a leg spinner at this stage. Shane Warne. And every conversation that you had at that point really came back to him because he was so big and huge and, 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 and you know, then you've got that period probably from what, 98 uh, <laughs> till now, where there was just a controversy every, what, six to 12 months. There was just something that happened. You know, had the problems with his charity. Mm. You know, he had the, the anti-smoking, comp, uh, you know, uh, sponsorship that, that, he, that he had problems with. He had the many, many, many random affairs. There was a woman coming forward every 12 minutes saying that she'd had an affair with Warney, you know. Then he was caught in his underwear. But, oh, I forgot about that one. Yeah, the, on the front page of the Sun. Then there was the, the drugs thing. Then there was the Elizabeth Hurley thing. Then, remember, he was on that, he was on that, um, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, was it? Or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And he's talking about how we descended from aliens, not from monkeys. <laughs> right? You know what I mean? He had his own chat show, and that was like the biggest thing to talk about that year. And it was like perhaps the worst chat show in the, you know, it, it made James Corden look like Michael Parkinson, right? Like it was horrendous, that chat show. And, and it was like every, he just never went away because something would happen. One thing that I don't think has been talked about very much, and, I might have to do something about this because it, it's really interesting. He basically helped the IPL become the IPL and the Big Bash become the Big Bash. Mm. So the IPL needed a big overseas star to go with the Indian stars. Well, you know, that's about as big as you get. Then he, then he backs Moneyball. The man doesn't even like numbers, but suddenly he's talking <laughs> about Moneyball. They win with a Pakistani as their star, which people have forgotten as well. Somehow Tanvir is their star. So huge, huge for IPL. Shane Warne wins the first IPL. Then he's with the Melbourne Stars and the whole thing's ridiculous. He's on like this other contract with them. He's like ruining the salary cap at his play. But then he does two incredible things. One is he starts a fight with Marlon Samuels yeah. where like, it's almost like a physical fight on the, on the yeah. ground. Like we haven't seen anything like that since what really Lily and uh, Mandad. Mandad. Like there really hasn't been that many physical alter. You see bumping, don't you? Yeah. You don't see bats being thrown at people. You do not see bats being thrown. <laughs> And then the other thing that he did, I don't know if you remember this, and this might have even been a bigger deal for the, uh, for the Big Bash. He's on mic commentating while he's bowling, and he says he's going to spin the ball around, around Brendan McCullum's legs. Now, John, he does not spin the ball around Brendan McCullum's legs. It's important to know that he bowled a slider. And what happened was that Brendan McCullum walks right across his stumps and misses it anyway. So either... So I, I think he did admit eventually that it wasn't even the ball that he said, but it didn't matter, right? Because it went viral around the world yeah. that Shane Warne called how he was going to get Brendan McCullum out and did it. It didn't matter that it was completely different delivery because most people don't know it. Even after all those years, those people really don't know that much about leg spin, right? It just kept happening. Every six months or so, it would happen again and again, and he'd be back in it, and someone would say something about him online, and he'd go off or he'd get, you know, just continued to go on and he was just he never could go away he was just always there and a lot of it wasn't he would occasionally come up with like what would you call them almost soft focus michael vaughn tweets where 
I'm not sure how much he really believed it, but he thought he'd better say something because he hadn't said something on social media. But even then, it was mostly the stuff where he wasn't trying to do anything. Oh, my God, Shane Warne's mural. Do you remember when Shane Warne's <laughs> oh, yeah, mural went yeah, viral? Yeah. Because it is, look, I could say Ridiculous. this because I'm a bogan stock, the same as Shane Warne. It is the most bogan thing you could ever have in your house in Australia is to have literally, the guy who did it was famous for doing footy posters, so uh, footy paintings where like it would be Carlton's 100, 120th anniversary or something and he'd go in and he'd do a mural of, of the Carlton yeah, yeah. players, you know, and it'd be like st one of the Carlton players would be standing on a magpie because that was, that was their big, you know, opposition was the magpies, whatever. And, you know, everyone had had their biceps a little bit more pumped up. Maybe there'd be like a celebrity Carlton fan in the background or something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, That's yeah, what he yeah. did. And it was like, he's a good artist. I'm not having a go, but it wasn't, it was very much art for middle-aged men to put up in their in in their in their over their pool table right yeah yeah like and not having a go at that because my, no, my no, dad no. still got that's some cool. of that stuff you know in and in, in his house but that's what it was and Warren saw all these posters and decided that's the guy who's going to paint my entire wall and then then you, you it's, it's so much about Warren. it's famous people he knows fine it's also famous people he didn't really know that well right like is elvis on it I'm trying to think. It's someone ridiculous, yeah. right? It's kind of like a mixture of a, of an Oasis band album cover from the mid '90s. And uh, yeah, have you seen that? The Cold War Steve. Do you follow him on Twitter? It's <laughs> it like is a bit that. like Cold War Steve. You know, yeah. you wouldn't be surprised if like Alan Brazil suddenly like his face is in There's there. There's a random Kilda player called Aaron Hamill. Now, it's important to know that Kilda had a player called Tony Lockett who. Warney probably would have been, we haven't even talked about the fact that he was virtually a professional footballer until he was told he was too slow. But Warn would have played in, at the same time as Tony Lockett. Tony Lockett was a god, this big, fat, powerful forward, right? Everyone loved him. That's not who was on Warney's mural, though. It's Aaron Hamill, this weird <laughs> metrosexual footballer who played really hard. Jimmy Mascarenas is on the mural. I don't know if you remember that. It's, it's his best mate, isn't it? Yeah, Darren Berry, I think, is on the mural as well. Yeah. And then it's like, isn't it Bruce Springsteen, Mick Jagger, <laughs> maybe Elton John, Marilyn Monroe, mate, isn't it? Pamela Anderson, is Pamela Anderson on it as well? I think. I mean, it's ridiculous. Mate, Mick Jagger tweeted that, about how gutted he was that Shane Warner died. So Mick Jagger needs to be there. Well, Mick Jagger loved it. You, there's that great story that Crash Craddock wrote in a, in a newspaper the other day where Crash Craddock said to Shane Warne, I heard a rumour that Elton John once said if he could be reborn as anyone else, he'd want to be re reborn as you. And then Warne went, yeah, Mick Jagger said that as well. <laughs> like, I think you have to realise the sort of magnetism that he had and, you know, hanging out with Michael Jordan is not a normal thing for a cricketer to do, right? We haven't even mentioned the fact that he went over to America a couple of years ago and got like Sashin and like Glenn McGrath and like all these cricketers to go and play in front of like 20,000 expat Indians in a baseball stadium. Doesn't he also <laughs> talk about America and random things? You know me, I don't know anything about the royal family. What the, the woman that everyone hate, the right wing media hate that's in the royal family now? Uh, um, Meghan Markle? Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, Prince didn't Harry. Didn't know her because he was the, he was the celebrity <laughs> suits <laughs> fan? He used to tweet at, like, the other actors from Suits all the time, right? Like, the, the level of, like, random famous people that he knew. So I said this on, I can't remember if it was on TalkSport or Sky Sports News, but I was saying about how he was, like, Nike's first big play into cricket. And there were all these people going, well, actually, Ian Botham uh, had a sponsorship with Nike. And I was like, yeah, but at that stage, no one knew what Nike was. It wasn't a big thing. And yeah. they gave him a boot to hold on the back of a thing. They didn't take him to Portland, Oregon, 
to meet Michael Jordan in the Nike factory when, and at that stage, Nike was the biggest thing in the world, right? And they were making a play for Shane Warne. The whole thing is just so ridiculous on layer, on layer, on layer. Oh, here's another great story. Russell Crowe, and I, I want to get the movies right here, but Russell Crowe had a shoulder injury. I always thought this was on Gladiator but it might've been Cinderella man, but there was certainly, he had a shoulder injury perhaps on both of those films and he had to get someone to fix his shoulder. Right. He called Shane Warne. <laughs> of course he did. Right? And he says to Shane Warne, you had a shoulder injury. Who can we get out here to fix my shoulder? And the bloke they send out is Errol Alcott, who was the Australian physio who ends up working on a couple of Russell Crowe's films to help him. <laughs> and I'm 95% sure this is true. Watch Gladiator. In the scenes when Russell Crowe's in the Coliseum, he picks up the dirt and he rubs it on his hands. No way. That is a homage to Shane Warne. Uh, that is one of the biggest movies of all time. That and is Russell Crowe, as obviously uh, uh, Russell Crowe is involved in cricket in a way that most Hollywood actors aren't. Hugh Jackman, you know, uh, what well, produced a documentary on cricket, but Russell Crowe literally, like, was, you know, related to two test cricketers and one of the, one of the greats as well. But, it's like Shane Warne was so important that in one of the biggest movies of all time, there's a Shane Warne moment. It's just, the whole thing's ridiculous. It shouldn't happen. Do you know what Shane Warne's favourite tour was? Well, he, he probably said it. That it was his favourite tour was depending on who his audience was. But <laughs> I, So I found this, this I, I can't remember why, but I was, I was Googling Brian McMillan. I, I can't remember why. As we always are. Yeah. Goffey never stops going on about Justin Langer and Brian McMillan. I don't know if you've, Noticed, I'm sure you have. Anyway, so he's on the fields. He's having a bit of a set two with Alan Border, uh, for all people. And this is Shane Warne's first overseas tour, I think. He and, might have gone to New Zealand, but yeah. No, he would have gone to New Zealand and, and Sri Lanka, but it would have been really early on. Really tour. early on. And you know the Aussies and the Saffirs, they've got a kind of a, a bond, haven't they? You, 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 yeah, you, you feel, I don't, well, you can just explain it, but it seems like you feel you're cut from the same cloth kind of thing. So I was watching this thing and, and basically I watched Brian McMillan tell the story on one chat show and then, you know how YouTube works, suddenly there was Shane Warne telling the same story on another show like five or ten years later or whatever it was. Imagine it now, right? For those listeners, for those listeners who haven't heard the story, essentially Shane Warne is on one of his first tours, Alan Border's the captain. They're in South Africa. It must have been one of the first tours in South Africa since they were readmitted to uh, to sport. And Brian McMillan is having words with Alan Border. <laughs> I mean, two guys, man. I mean, imagine yeah. being Shane Warne. You'll be like, you know, you talk about mentors. Well, just imagine that as a baptism, you know, watching that in action. And then, anyway, it's lunch and they troop off. And Brian McMillan's in his dressing room. And then the Aussies are down the corridor in their dressing room. And Brian McMillan manages to convince the security guard to give him his Uzi. <laughs> and this, it's a loaded Uzi. And then he charges down the corridor, kicks in the door of the Aussie's dressing room, and then runs in with this Uzi and pretends that he's going to shoot Alan, Bo Alan Border. And Shane Warren, and like, they're all sitting there like, What? And then Shane Warne, and he's telling, retelling the story, suddenly it goes from an Uzi to a Kalashnikov. And he sits there and he goes, that was the best tour I ever went on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh man. I mean, just 
it was such a remarkably weird life from beginning to end. Yeah. Where I don't know, like, if, if you were to make the movie. So I remember, so Mark wrote the book with him, right? Yeah. And I can't remember if Mark was asking me before or after, but we were talking about writing and, and we, were, we were talking about it. And he was saying, how do you write this book? And I was like, well, you can't. Because if you write it from beginning to end, it's a Churchill book, right? Yeah. Because so much happened that it's just going to go on for volumes and volumes. The only way to write it is to be like, it's like you do it like a biopic, like in, in Hollywood, right? Where you just pick like five or six different scenes. You tell the entire story throughout. But then you're like missing on about 34 controversies. and about There's no way to do it properly because too much happened to him. I mean, put, put it this way. You could make a very good claim. Glenn McGrath was a better bowler than Shane Warne, right? She, Glenn McGrath obviously lost his wife quite young. Glenn McGrath once had a photo of him next to a dead elephant on a safari trip. What else he got on Glenn McGrath? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Came from the country. He lived in a caravan. He had a really good memory. He would remember every ball. He couldn't bat. Do you know what I mean? He trod on a cricket ball and he turned up to practice with ankle swingers, basically, because he was quite... It was a country type. That was it. That's it, really, isn't it? And now, forget Glenn McGrath, Curly Ambrose. Again, his mum. His mum and the bell. And yeah. the bell. You've got his mum and the bell. You've got the reggae band. You've got the fact he basically put on a character, you know, like now we know he's this fun, loving guy, but we all, we all thought he was the most terrifying fast bowler in the world when we were watching him bowl. And you just like, again, those are two absolute greats, right? Yeah. Murali's story is almost more about Sri Lanka and the politics around him than him himself right? Yeah. Warren is just like, you could do an early Warren movie, you could do a middle Warren movie, you could do and uh, you could do a movie on Warren after he retires and it would be captivating, right? Well, well how many biographies has Warren actually got? I would hate to know. Must have a li- I mean, Gideon's done one, Nico's done one, there must be 10 of them. He wrote a book once about his top 100 cricketers of all time, and I think I gave it half a star in wisdom. <laughs> I interviewed him off the back of that. That's the first time I ever met him. It was a terrible book. Did you read it? I didn't read the book, no. <laughs> I didn't. It was absolutely I remember, terrible. was it Steve Waugh's not in it or, or something? Steve, Steve Waugh's not in the 100, and I think, I think Adam Gilchrist was quite low in it as well. That was no, a... I reckon what happened was he did his 50 for a newspaper, right, and he left Gilchrist off. Can't remember. You might be right about Steve Waugh too. He left Gilchrist off, but he put Darren Berry in at number 49 or 50. For those who don't know, Darren Berry was his Victorian wicketkeeper. And don't well, get me wrong. Darren Berry was. He's on the mural. He's in the book. He's in the mural, yeah. So that tells you where he is. But Darren Berry was, to this day, I think the best wicketkeeper that I ever saw live. Him and Jack Russell, I think he was more dynamic than Jack Russell, although they were almost as good as each other, just slightly different. Don't get me wrong. Darren Berry was that good. He also was about as good a bat as you are. <laughs> right. And So pretty good then? Yeah, pretty good. <laughs> so he had him at like 40 to 50. And then obviously he gets his book deal and they're like, yeah, can you move to 100, Shane, so we can fit him a few more players in. And he just moves Darren Berry back from like 49 to 50, like, like further down the list. <laughs> he just wanted his mate on the list. And I've got a feeling that Gilchrist is high 80s. That. Uh, yeah. I mean, I hated that book so much, but there's no doubt that there's an incredible bias against people he did not like and an incredible bias for people who played at Victoria or Hampshire with him or he was just really close friends with, right? Like, you know, just completely off the books there. Can you remember the start of this show before we came to air? We said, how long do you think we'll do? And you said, um, 
well, it's got to be minimum 20 minutes. And I was like, yeah, it's definitely going to be over 20 minutes. I mean, I mean, essentially, a lot's been said about Shane Warne. Stop now, stop now. Close your eyes. What's the memory? To be honest with you, I've been quite taken by the imagery that a lot of the papers have used. And so that's what comes to mind. It's him basically holding his hat. Um, I would say that is my memory. But that's why I was really interested to talk to you about it because actually I don't have... And I was, I think I was asked something similar yesterday. I don't have one memory mm. because I didn't celebrate Shane Warne as a cricketer because he was, yeah. that's Destroying my you. relationship. Yeah, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why, look, mate, if Shane Warne isn't in that Australian side in 2005, you don't get a quarter of a million people on the streets of London. Mm -hmm. You don't have Trafalgar Square field. You know, you do not have MBEs for those 12 players that, that played in the, in the series. You know, Shane Warne had to be there. One of the reasons mm. that when people talk about why was the 2005 Ashes series so momentous, there's a lot of different reasons. And, you know, the long wait that England had to win. And, and you know, by 2009, when England won it again, everyone was be like, well, okay. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? We mm. hadn't had to wait for 18 years. We hadn't had our noses rubbed in it like we had done for 18 years. I mean, you guys stopped having ticker tape parades after what, knife. 89 probably so Look, there's did we that even have one then <laughs> yeah i don't know but you definitely had one yeah. i remember watching it and then of course it was the fact that it was i think it was number one versus number two in the world so you know the standard of cricket was mm. high the two two good teams two the two best teams in the world and then of course you just had those ridiculous you know and australia won the first test so you know it's always more interesting when a team comes back from behind to win a test series and then of course you had the humor of the the rain at the oval and then you had heroic performances, you know, uh, whether it was Freddie or whether it was Warren himself or Ponting or, you know, saving a test. And then you had the, the drama of the McGrath situation and you had all of this stuff. But the main reason was, the main absolute reason was the characters. This was a test series that pitted together characters. You know, Kevin Peterson was new to the, to the scene, but he was still obviously because he had that stupid hair character and he was, we'd just seen him destroy Jason, um, Jason Gillespie. And we'd just seen him in us. We'd just seen him go to South Africa and just batter them. And it was just mm. like, what? Freddie Flintoff, of course, an absolute character. And then of course, Australia, the character, but this kind of like wrote, the thing with Australia is that they had a, a robotic nature to them. They were that good. You know, Hayden, Langer, Ponting and McGrath. There was a metronomic, you know, kind of like mm. they just ground this stuff out. Gilchrist is a little bit different. He There was something magical about him, but it was Shane Warne. And even in that series, we never beat Shane Warne. We beat Australia, mm. but we didn't beat Shane. And I reckon, actually, if I was to say one memory of Shane Warne, because, of course, that if you would say the one image from that series, it was Freddie Flintoff with Brett Lee at Edgbaston. But there was a moment... I can't remember what test it was. I think it was when Freddie Flint, Flintoff hit 100 or 80 or something and, and Warren finally gets him and he walks off and you, the camera, and it's not doesn't mean to, but the camera just captures Shane who breaks off from celebrating to just shout out, Freddie, Freddie. And he Freddie doesn't hear him. Mm. Freddie's just walking off. He goes, Freddie. And Freddie looks around and Shane just claps. And that, I think that's the memory. So. Oh, and him buying us a drink. 
Yeah, definitely he minds the drink. He complained about my drink order too, and he had the most convoluted drink Oh, no, drink he had the himself. most disgusting drink. I mean, I was just like, what the hell are you drinking? It was like Tizer, bitters, vodka, and it was a pint of it. And it was like, mate, how have you got no. teeth left? Anyway, tell me no, your story. That was not a good drink. So 92, 93, when they're playing the West Indies at Boxing Day, my dad, we didn't have, we, I think my dad had been unemployed for a while. We didn't have any money. So my dad was like, we're going to afford one day of the test. And maybe the tickets were cheaper at the end of the test because he said we can go day four or day five. <laughs> so I don't know why. but That's where we used to go as well. So it must have been cheaper back then, yeah. Mm. And, and I said, well, day four. And he's like, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. You know, we've got this young leg spinners playing in the team. And, you, know, you know, day five, you'll see the end of the game. And I said, yeah, but we won't say full, full day's cricket. Mm. Day four, I'll see the full day's cricket. And he's like, yeah. I'm not. And he wanted day five. And I said day four. So we went day four. And we saw Damien Martin uh, chip around a 60-odd. Not particularly fluently, which he obviously could be a beautiful batter. Was oh, it, yeah. Wasn't his best work, Damien Martin, that, that particular day? It's not in Rob Moody's collection of, like, pinged cover drives. Australia were just trying to set up a lead. And I'm trying to think. I think we probably saw a little bit of Richie Richardson bat too. If, or maybe they declared the next day. I can't remember. But it wasn't. It wasn't. My memories are just Damien Martin mishitting balls over <laughs> and over again on, the, on, on this wicket. Anyway, they set them 359 the next day. So West Indies get to about, I think it was one for, uh, well, I'm going to do Australian because this, it was in Australia, one for 151. And it looks like West Indies are going to chase them. Remember, this is the West Indies, right? They hadn't been dethroned at this point. They would win that series against Australia in Australia, which sounds bizarre now, but that used, you know, that's what the West Indies used to do. And Warren comes on and he bowls this, what looks like a half tracker and it run, runs along the ground. And that's what the commentators say, right? That's a half tracker that runs along the ground. And it's only, I think, Richie Benno might come onto the commentary later when he explains that it was the flipper. And it was so iconic because Richie Richardson was a huge hero of mine and obviously iconic because he had the big maroon floppy hat or wide brimmed hat, whatever you, whichever country you're from calls it something different. And, you know, the hat stays beautiful as the ball slides straight through him to get him out LBW. No one really knows what's happened. That's the beginning of the Shane Warne story in Test Cricket, right? Like, that's the time. So that's the ball I remember the most, and that's the day I remember the most. Also, because he took seven for that day, and my dad has never forgiven me for not allowing him to be there live. <laughs> but my image, the image I always have, and there's a gif of this that I found randomly. Remember when he would like be at the top of his mark playing with the ball? And he'd be looking mm. around. Sometimes he'd look at the batter. Sometimes he'd be looking at the field. Sometimes he'd be chatting to another field or whatever it is. But that is what I remember the most. And, and I've been trying to think about why that stood out the most. And I think it's because he was different than great spinners before him, like, you know, Bisham Beatty and, uh, you know, uh, other, you know, great spinners that we, you know, well, we didn't see much of. But even someone like Abdul Qadir, because he was a bit more showman. Uh, although Abdul Qadir was pretty showman as well, but not on the same level as Warren. It was almost like there was that pause for the cameras, mm. right? But also he's working everyone out. But if you think about it, you and I both grew up in an era where Abdul Qadir was the spinner, right? <laughs> or you had some poor off spinner just wheeling stuff at the other end and trying to get through their overs as quickly as possible. Suddenly, everyone else was a seamer and the seamers would go all the way to the end of their mark and then come straight in. They would go all the way there under the mark and come straight in. Suddenly you had this guy who's like slowing the game down, not just physically, but also like mentally. Mm. And the camera was on him longer. And I, it's only recently I worked that out that we probably spent more time watching Shane Warne think, <laughs> yeah. right? Than almost anything else. 
just him at the top of the mark, you know, whether it was the thing that thing or licking his fingers or whatever, you know, or, you know, uh, all the, you know, running his hand through his hair, all those things that we've seen like a million times. It's that kind of image of him surveying his lands. that was like the most common thing that you would see of Shane Morn. And that isn't the case. If you, you know, if you think of Malcolm Marshall or Dale Stain or whatever, the most common thing of them is running, right? It's running in, you know, their gait straight away. You almost know Shane Warne just from standing still. And that's the image for me. He made the game stop. And that's essentially what he did by being a leg spinner. He stopped the game going in the direction it was, and then it went in the direction that he wanted. And sure, DRS and Murali and Kumble all coming at the same stage helped spin bowling as well. But like, they're both great. But Shane Warne was something completely different. I mean, Sachin Tendulkar is the most famous cricketer from that era, but he's not the most famous cricketer from that era, right? Not by any fault of his own. You can love Sachin Tendulkar and you can follow him and there's no doubt he was more loved by more people. Sachin Tendulkar was just a lovely boy who made a lot of runs. Shane Warne was, he was Cricket's Elvis, right? He was literally Cricket's Elvis. And it was impossible not to be part of that. Well, uh, let's finish it there because I don't think it gets any better. I'm aware though, right at the start, I said to you, I'll tell you the story about the Manchester Test. Oh, yeah. So I haven't got scorecards in front of me, but from memory, England were once again facing an uphill task. Stop me if you've heard this story before. England were <laughs> facing an uphill task to either bat out five sessions or score a ridiculous amount of runs to either save or win a test match. I mean, you know, life has, it's, life's changed so much since, since 1993. Anyway. It's approaching the end of day four and England are just about clinging on, just about clinging on. I think they've lost two wickets and it's approaching six o'clock and my mum and dad are calling me in for dinner next door. And, you know, by this point, remember, I'd already had the best part of eight years of misery, not just against Australia. England lost against everybody. So it wasn't just an Australian thing. And also the Ashes were not the all, they were important, but there was an inequality about my love of cricket. Okay. I just watch it during the summer because it was on BBC and you'd basically just watch England, whoever they were watching. But, it, you know, every summer, it was just terrible. It was just awful. Anyway, Aussies are here. It's Old Trafford and England are two down. And if they can just get through this last over, I can go and have dinner because I'm being called at and I can at least dream. At least I can have that night where I can just dream of another great escape. Mm. And Merv Hughes is bowling that final over. And my dad's calling me in and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be in, I'll be in in a second. And the first ball of the overs negotiated. Second ball of the overs negotiated. Come on, John, John, come and have your dinner. Come and have your dinner. You've got to come in now. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got, I've, just let me watch his last over. And I'm like, you know, when you're like half in the door, you know, yeah. I've got to leave. And I'm like, and then Murphy's bowls the next, the next ball. And I'm like, I'm not, just three balls, just three balls. Just let me watch three balls. And then they're calling me and I'm going to get in trouble. And then Murphy's bowls the penultimate ball and it's okay. And then I'm like, no, just one ball, one more ball. I just need to watch this last ball. And then Murphy's comes in and no bloody surprise whatsoever. He bowls Mike Gatting off his pads. And I just, that was it. I just, I, I just given up. I've given up with this stupid bloody sport. 
And I just stormed off and I gave up. I gave up cricket for, I don't know how long, but I don't think it was, <laughs> it was probably about two tests. And that is what I remember about the ball of the century. But I don't, I don't remember ball of the century. Do, do you know, the weird thing is that we'll finish on the ball of the century, right? So yeah. we know what happens when we watch it now. So when I was writing my book, I really wanted to go back and watch the whole clip. And I don't know if it was Roy Belinda or someone else, but someone had put up the whole build-up of it. And it's just a bowler coming on for an over, right? Like, I know he'd taken, I'm trying to think, was it New Zealand he'd taken some wickets against, or South Africa? Obviously, there was those Sri Lankan wickets in the West Indies. But there was no reason to fear a leg spinner in England on day one of a test match, even if you were worried about him. And there was some hype about him, but not massive. Like, Graham Hickett smashed him everywhere in that warm-up game, right? And so you go back and you watch it now, and then... You think, and I remember pausing it once when I was watching it, and the ball was like, as it comes out of his hand. So there's the normal drift that that ball gets, and then it just veers off violently at the end, right? Which was something we'd never really saw that much with spinners at that point. And there's a point if you pause it just before it gets there, where Mike Gatting's in the right position to play this ball. The crowd's just watching a normal ball, and you have absolutely no idea that for 14 years he's going to define this series right and like in some ways he defined it cricket even when Sachin was a bigger name even when freddie had his moment he, you know there were plenty of incredible things happened in cricket but warren kind of defines it and you just like if you stop it before then it's just nothing and it's so weird to think how it was such a big explosion and even him taking wickets against the other teams was a very very big deal but when he took them in england it was like or maybe there's no way to actually stop this. This is a force and everything has changed. And to think from that moment that one person can define almost two countries' relationships with each other for a long period of time, it's a remarkable thing to be able to do. And look, chances are we're going to lose national cricket, right? It's going to go towards franchise cricket. We'll still have international games, but they won't be what they were you know, for 150 years. And we won't have that sort of relationship with someone like, Shane Moore. You have a look at A.B. De Villiers and all those Indian fanboys who absolutely love him, right? That's because he's almost an Indian because he plays for their team, mm. right? Shane Warne is like, he was a defining bridge between Australia and England on and off the field for a very long time. And no one saw that coming. No one saw a leg spinner coming. No one thought that the biggest star in cricket was ever going to be a spinner, right? Lance Gibbs had the most wickets in test cricket and Lance Gibbs could walk past 99.9% .9 of cricket fans and no one's even turning around to see who Lance Gibbs is, right? And Shane Warne was completely different than that. And there is that moment of time when you think back to it now, we look at it. It's like, have you ever seen the film Alien? When mm. he's in the shoots and he's going around for about 10 minutes, right? Mm. If you watch that when you know what the film Alien is about, it's like, oh my God, this is the scariest thing you've ever seen. But I talked to yeah. a friend who saw Alien the first time it came out. They didn't know what Alien was. Like, they didn't really understand the horror element of it. They're just watching it go, this, this thing goes, oh my God. <laughs> and you think back, I had that moment and I've forgotten it because now he's colored everything that has happened ever since, right? Shane Warne colored every single moment of that relationship ever since. And until that ball pitches, None of that happens, and we didn't know. And I, I find the whole thing just completely remarkable. I can't separate Shane Warne from cricket, and I never thought about it until yesterday. Thanks for coming on my podcast. Thanks for coming on my podcast. <laughs> <laughs>